Welcome to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. Mosaic Church seeks to engage the modern age with the historic Christian faith. If you don't have a home church, please don't use this podcast as a substitute for being a member of a local community of faith. Whether you call Mosaic your home or not, we hope that you find this sermon convicting and encouraging in your walk with Jesus. Here's our lead pastor, Pastor Greg Brown, with this week's sermon. For those of you that are here and for those of you who are going to be listening on the podcast later, um, we are uh, currently in, a, uh, in a, a series through First and Second Timothy. Uh, this has sort of been our bread and butter for the, the summer here. Uh, we're doing things a little bit differently than we would normally do. Uh, we really like to go more verse by verse, passage by passage through scripture. And yet we're doing a more of a chapter by chapter sort of thing. Uh, during the summer here, because uh, we had you know the the right number of weeks to get through First and Second Timothy, and we had uh, we we had the the desire to do it. We were originally considering some other things, but we were like, you know what, a broad overview of First uh, and Second Timothy could be really helpful for our church. And so uh, this is sort of, sort of where we headed. And uh, like I said, this isn't. Uh, always normal for us to go more chapter by chapter. However, uh, what we do here is always expositional. We want to go to the word of God and ask, what does God have to say for us, right? What does he say in his word? And so it's, it's not so much about what I say to you here today. It's what God has said through his word to you today. The main idea of the, the passage we're going to be in today, which is going to be Second uh, Timothy chapter 2, um, is it just sort of distilled down is the idea of just keep swimming. <laughs> you remember this from uh, Finding Nemo, right? Like Dory might have been a little crazy, but she knew how to persevere. And really that's a, a piece of what we're going to be get at, getting at today. Uh, the idea is sort of like no matter what happens, continue, push on. And we're going to see why we can push on. It's not just about pushing on for the sake of pushing on. It's about understanding why we do that. So the main idea in more long format is that the gospel gives us hope that motivates us to persevere through suffering, pursue holiness, and to engage those who oppose us with gentleness. This is what the gospel does for us. More simply, but maybe not quite as simply as just keep swimming, we persevere because we know how the story ends. That's why we persevere. So I'm not bearing the lead here. If you pick up nothing else today from what I say, that's a good thing to walk away with, right? Feel free to write that in your notes if you're taking them. Otherwise, we're going to go ahead and we're going to read Second uh, Timothy chapter 2 in its entirety. Uh, we ask everyone to stand here as we read the Word of God, so why don't you guys stand with us? We do this to, to confer honor upon uh, the, the Word of God. Uh, we don't uh, see... Uh, the words of men as being inspired, but the words that God has given us in his word are inspired. And so we stand to show honor to what God has said. Second Timothy chapter two in its entirety says this, you then my child be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also share in suffering as a good soldier in Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. 
Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. For if we are faithless, faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue the righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies, for you know they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps then grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that this morning that you would help us to be faithful even through suffering, that you would help us to pursue holiness even as the world looks on incredulously. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to speak with gentle confidence, for we know who you are. Lord, help us to know even more. Help us to find confidence in the hope that we have in the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen. You guys can be seated. So 2 Timothy is a, uh, is a pastoral epistle, is what we like to call it. Uh, it's a letter written to a young pastor in Ephesus about matters of doctrine and church leadership to a large degree. It means that so, this really applies directly to those who are in pastoral ministry, okay? I'm not going to pull any punches there. That's the sort of main audience that, that Paul was getting at here as he wrote this letter to his young protege. But it also applies to all Christians, so you can't just zone out when you get to First and Second Timothy and Titus, which is also a pastoral epistle. See, pastors aren't around just to do ministry so that you don't have to, right? Yeah, too bad. Pastors aren't around, around to just do that. The, the primary purpose of pastors is to guide the flock by teaching sound doctrine and providing example for the flock. So how does a pastoral epistle, a letter to a pastor 
talking about pastoral things really apply to the people of God? It applies by example, because if, if Timothy was supposed to live up to what Paul was commanding him here to do, then the people who were following Timothy, who were, who were saying, I look to Timothy as an example, as my pastor, then they would also follow him in these things. So it, it really does apply indirectly to all Christians, because we see it here in the word. And again, if it applies to pastors, then it applies to everyone. We've seen this in the past uh, when we looked at First at Timothy. We looked at the qualifications for elders and deacons. It's really just mature Christians is what the qualifications were, right? These people are meant to provide an example for the flock. And so if pastors and deacons are meant to be examples in all of these things, then all Christians are called to the same things. Like if we're called, if pastors and, and elders and, and ministers in general are, are, are called to be examples in faithfulness, in patient suffering and holiness and in gentleness in the course of conflict, then all Christians are likewise called. Does that make some sense? So like I said, you can't just tune out, right? You can't just go, ah, we're not going to deal with this. But there is something here that is, it is a little specific for uh, people who are, are in that elder pastor role. First couple of verses mention faithful teachers, now, it's not absolutely specific because we all teach, though, right? To a degree, we all teach. Either we teach one another as we do Bible study, as we come to conclusions, as we pray for one another, even as other people look to us, for example, or teach children, teach, you know, like peers, whoever, right? So we teach to some degree, and, and so it does apply, but really specifically applying to uh, the pastoral role here. He says, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The church needs faithful leaders. They need faith, faithful teachers. This is interesting. Like this, this word faithful means a lot. There's a lot of depth here. It's not just who keep the faith, but there's this idea of trust that happens here. When we say we have faith in Christ, we're saying we have trust in Christ. It's the same sort of mentality, right? These men should be trustworthy, not only trustworthy with the doctrine, but trustworthy in, in just that relational sense, right? They'll show up when they're supposed to show up. So these people choose patient ministry over chasing the next thing. I feel like we see this a lot in, in a lot of different contexts within Christianity. You just chase the next biggest thing, the next biggest platform, rather than going, you know what? I'm just going to sit in patient ministry with the people that God has given me. I've seen this time and time again where people will, will go to a church for three years and they have about three years worth of sermons and then they say, well, that's all the sermons I've got, time to go elsewhere. And they just continue trying to climb the ladder. But the reality is that the church wasn't meant to be a ladder to climb. It was meant to be a ministry to perform. And so we need teachers who are willing to just say, hey, like I'm gonna show up to this church and be with the people who, I'm, who God has given me. The church also needs people who are willing to pass on understanding. We need to be able to teach people not only what the Bible says, but how to read the Bible itself, how to interpret the scriptures. Because there's a lot of this idea of like the, the, the expert has to have all the knowledge and he interprets the scriptures for you. But 
ideally, the expert who, is, who has been trained in these things, who has learned from others, would come before you and say, hey, this is how we do this. This is how you can read your Bible. This is how you could interpret this. This is, how, this is why I interpret it this way. And that's why we try to be expositional when we preach in, in this context. We try to bring out the meaning of the word so that you can see like, what's going on in here. These teachers also need to teach people how to apply the Bible, how to apply it to their lives, because far too many have gone wrong in their study of Scripture just trying to amass knowledge without any application. We need teachers who are willing to say, okay, not only is this good knowledge to have, but it should affect how you live. We need to teach people what it means to follow Christ through example. They need to teach people how to teach more people. It's really what Paul was getting at here with Timothy. He says, entrust this to faithful men, the sound doctrine that I've given you, entrust this to faithful men who will teach others. It's multiplicative, right? So if I or Pastor Brandon or, or anyone else here is in ministry with you and they're teaching you how to get the meaning out of scripture, right? How to read what God has said, then the expectation is that you would pass that on. You'd give that to someone else. Tell them what God is teaching you. See, it's not just about getting knowledge for yourself then, it's about passing it on. We always talk about the next generation. I feel like that's a, that's a thing, right? Everybody talks about the next generation. You know, kids, people who come after us. We need to pass this whole body of sound doctrine on to them. The, the Christian faith, moving on here, has, has, has always been a bit countercultural. And I, I'm going to get to the, the point here in a second, but I, I want you to see this. The, a lot of people we talk to and work with and have a relationship with every day have a few different worldviews, okay? The first worldview that I see is legalism. Okay, a lot of people, they, they live in this world of legalism. I'm good enough, therefore I get into heaven. Or I try to be good enough so that I can get into heaven, right? Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, even Roman Catholicism all can fit under this legalistic sort of umbrella. That's world religion. Pretty much any other sort of formal religion that we see has elements of, of just raw legalism in it. It's one of the buckets that people fit into, okay? The second bucket that people can fit into is materialism. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, worldliness versus godliness. It's basically the idea that only that which I can see, perceive, or, or otherwise measure exists. That's it. And therefore, I must get all the stuff that I can in order to make my life whole. I need to fill that desire for meaning with stuff because stuff is all that exists, we see a lot of this in our culture these days. And then there's, there's a third one, which I love is it's irrational spiritualism. This is, might be a little bit of a strange pass, way, to, way to put that. I don't know. It's not a formal term. I came up with it, all right? So don't Google it later and just you know, email me. It's fine. The idea here, though, is that people, people often say, well, I have a faith. I have a spiritual life. But it's really something that, has, that they've made up in their head. And they've said... Well, no, not everybody has to believe this. Not, like, I, it's, it's true for me, but it's not true for the next person. It's, 
it's irrational. It doesn't make any sense. If, if this is true, then it is true. It is absolutely true, unquestionably, right? If you believe it to be true, then truth is truth, right? It must be transferable to the next person. But a lot of people say, well, I have a spiritual life. I, I'm a spiritual person. But like my beliefs don't have any bearing on the next person. It's irrational. It makes no sense. They basically worship a God that they've come up with in their heads, right? It's a God of their imagination, as I like to put it. I'll be honest with you, a lot of Christians fall into this category. A lot of people who call themselves Christians fall into the category of irrational spirituality because they define God however they like rather than by the word that he has given us. If you're asking the question, who is God? And you're answering it with whatever your opinions are, you're practicing irrational spirituality. This is very countercultural, right? The idea that we would have uh, just absolute truth in conflict with those things, that is very countercultural. It's gonna cause a lot of friction, okay? You've got this idea of I've got you know, all these other, I've got legalism, I've got materialism, I've got this irrational spirituality, or maybe just general spirituality is maybe a more charitable term, right? And then you've got Christianity, which says there is absolute truth and it cannot be changed. It's, it's, you have Christianity that says, no, it's not about how good you are, it's about how good Jesus was and still is. What an interestingly countercultural thing, and Paul calls it out here. He says in verse three, share in suffering as a good soldier, soldier of Jesus Christ. What happens when you come into conflict with the world? Suffering, difficulty. Whether that's just general sort of friction in relationships and things like that, or it's honest to goodness persecution. We get this sort of friction. It's a difficult thing to experience that sort of suffering. But Paul encourages us. He says, suffer as a soldier of Jesus Christ. I'm gonna to get to the Jesus Christ part in a minute. I, I wanna to get to the, the imagery that he uses for now. In verse four, he talks about how uh, the Christian life is like being a soldier. And he says, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. He says, look, your perspective is different than these other people and, and it's gonna cause some friction. It's gonna cause some suffering. It's gonna cause great difficulty perhaps in your life, but it's worth it because you know the one that you serve. You know that he is good and that he, his promises are secure. The, the Christian life then is a, really a focused pursuit of knowing and enjoying and glorifying God. That's the Christian life as a whole, despite suffering. The blessings and sufferings of this world then, if we have that sort of mentality, are small in comparison to the, the glory and wonderful rewards that we will receive in heaven. I, I, I know this from experience that, that God provides for his people. Like, he provides 100%. When I, uh, when I came down with, with COVID last year and spend it, spent some time in the hospital, uh, paralyzed, that was fun. Uh, <laughs> that was the most sarcastic thing I've ever said. Um, it, was, uh, it was a harrowing experience. I use that word uh, by definition, harrowing. 
it was one of those things where like, I had never experienced greater suffering than that. Um, and I'll be honest, like, even last night, I, I, I didn't expect to share this, but like, even last night I was sitting in bed and like, I had flashbacks of like, the feelings that I had sitting in a hospital bed unable to move in pain. Like, it, was, it was awful. It was suffering in, in a true sense. There are many who have suffered more than I have, no doubt. Um, but I, I feel like I experienced true suffering in that moment. But I'll be honest, like I, I wasn't a good soldier at that point. <laughs> there was a whole lot of me that just was almost given up. But I can tell you that God provided. That's why we can suffer well. That's why we can soldier on. We can continue to press forward because God provided. God provided in, in the way of prayers from, from you guys, from people I didn't know. He provided fellowship through just being able to get on Zoom and, and listen to the services. and uh, like He provided unquestionably. It's why we can soldier on, right? I know what it means to, to press on like this. We can't let what is trivial, even th- something as, as terrible as that, get in the way of that which is truly life. It's First Timothy 6, right? Like that idea of like, there is something out there that is not material wealth, it's not the, our, our, even our, our physical health, there is something else out there that is far better, that which is truly life. Hold fast to Christ. Paul not only compares the Christian life to that of a soldier, but also an athlete. So he's, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. I love this because we play by different rules. I just said it, right? We have this, this conflict with the world because we play by different rules. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I talked about, uh, uh, you know, th- this question of like, which kind of football are we playing? Because if one team shows up and they're a bunch of little skinny soccer players and the other team shows up with pads and helmets, like that's going to be a, a bloodbath, right? It's going to be a bad day for everybody. Well, maybe just for the soccer team, right? Because <laughs> they already like fake and like roll on the ground like they're hurting or whatever else. Like, <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> but like seriously, like we play by a different rule set, right? Like, if nobody specifies what rule set's being used, then obviously we're going to have friction. And, and yet we, we know what our goal is. Our goal is different from the world. It's not stuff. It's not legalistic, moralistic sort of things. It's not irrational spirituality that just says, ah, I'm good enough. No, our goal is to know God, to glorify him and enjoy him forever. That's our goal. That's what we reach for. That is how we live our lives. That's the rule set. What, like the, the most important piece of the rules of any game is what's the goal, right? We have a different goal. The rest of it is small stuff. We have a different goal than the world does. And yet Paul says that we should compete, not in a negative sort of way, we should strive like an athlete toward the goal. He also talks about there being a reward here for suffering and laboring in ministry toward others. Verse six, it says, the hardworking farmer ought to have the first share of the crops. We talked about this again a couple of weeks ago. There is reward in heaven for those who are faithful here and now. It's not a way to get into heaven, your good works, but your good works are rewarded. What a wonderful thing to know. Those who suffer well, who minister and, and just continue and I'm not saying just ministers. I'm talking about Christians who minister, right? You catch what I'm saying? 
there is a reward for that. But I'll, I'll say this, that there is a reward in seeing people come to Christ in and of itself. To know that someone is experiencing that transformation, that someone has gone from death to life, to see that happen and to know that they are confidently moving forward and that God on that last day is going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. What a wonderful reward is that, to see that happening in someone's life. Man, I love it. Like the, the, the reward of glory and, and seeing others come to Christ, though, is a, is, it's a good secondary motivation. It's a good secondary motivation uh, for soldiering through suffering, for, uh, for you know, striving like an athlete, for uh, tilling the, the farm, as it were. But our primary motivation, this is where, really where I want to hang out for a minute today, uh, is the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. So there's all these wonderful things we get. We get meaning, we get hope, we get, we get to see people come to Christ. We, we have this reward in heaven, and yet our primary mo- motivation for living a godly life, for pressing through suffering, for continuing in ministry is our hope in Christ. In verses 8 through 13, Paul gets at this. He, he talks about Jesus being risen from the dead. This is a, a promise that we have for eternal life. He says, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. If Jesus had not been risen from the dead, raised from the dead, then we would have no hope of, of eternal life. He promised that would happen. If that hadn't happened, we would have no reason whatsoever to believe that anything else he said was true, but it happened. Not only that, we're said that it's said that we are joined together with him in his death and then in his life. What a wonderful thing. This is really our hope. See, it's not about the life here and now, it's about the life to come. This is why we can live our lives differently. It's founded upon promises, both past and future. Our life now is founded upon promises, both past and future. Not only that, not only do we press on for, like, because of that sort of uh, desire and hope that we have in Christ of eternal life, we also press on for the sake of others. Paul puts it forward uh, that in verse 10, he says, uh, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect so that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. So first primary motivation, eternal life in Christ. Secondary motivation, to see others come to Christ. Tertiary motivation, that's a word, tertiary. There's also quaternary, that's a fun one. I'm not gonna get there yet though. But that tertiary motivation of like the reward that we get in heaven, that glory that we're going to see, man. Like, if you put those in order, like, how awesome is that, right? Like, there's no reason that we should sit by and go, uh, you know, like when, I, when things get a little bit difficult, I'm not gonna push through. I'm just going to kind of wilt a little bit. Or when, when ministry gets difficult, I'm just, nah, I don't really want to do that. If we look at this and we, we're really honest about the amount of, of motivation that is behind all of this, this hope that we have in Christ, the, the, the desire to see others coming to Jesus, man, that's real motivation. It's just an amazing thing. If our, our faith is 
founded upon the person and work of Jesus Christ who died for sinners and, and rose on the third day. And, he ha- and he's made these promises of, of forgiveness and eternal life. Then we really can put first things first. We really can. Like, I've been talking about this for weeks, I feel like, because there's a lot of this happening in First and Second Timothy. It's that, like, right belief leads to right action, right? Orthodoxy to orthopraxy. We take what we believe and we apply it. If you believe that Christ has truly died for you, truly given you eternal life, and that there is truly a, a, a firm hope in eternal life, that there is something beyond this life and that God is calling you to something more and better, man, what kind of motivation is that? When you're, when you're suffering or when you're anxious or you're persecuted, do you remember that it's going to be worth it? I needed to be reminded of that this week. I needed, I needed to hear just this passage. I needed to be reminded that when stuff is hard, it's not time to wilt. It's time to press. It's time to remember my motivation, that it's not to get stuff for myself. It's not for my own physical well-being or anything else. It's for Christ. It all is for Christ. Because, you know, church planning is hard. Life is hard. You guys know this. All sorts of difficult things happen in our lives on a daily basis. Sometimes we have to be reminded that it's worth it. Man, like I said, I I, I don't know if any of you guys need to hear it. I need to hear it. I need to be reminded that it's worth it. If you're suffering through difficulty at home or at work or with friends or relatives, if you're suffering somewhere in your life and you know what I'm talking about, that, that idea of like I, need to, like, I need to get away from that. I need to, to you know what, like this little compromise in my, in my faith is no big deal. I'll just compromise right here so I don't have to press up against that anymore so there's not so much friction. You know what I'm talking about. Just keep swimming. Just keep pushing on because it's worth it. Because Christ is worth it. Don't get distracted. Persevere. Push on. But it's really easy to get distracted in the midst of this. There's a lot of things vying for our attention, right? So as you sort of go like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to focus in, I'm going to press on, I'm going to do good ministry, I'm going to learn more about who God is so that I can pass it on to others, I'm going to to suffer well, I'm going to soldier through that suffering so that God is glorified and people will go like, why are you pressing through this? But even though you're zeroed in, there's there's a lot of distraction. And uh, a couple of guys in uh, in this church at Ephesus had, had definitely caused some distraction Hymenius and Philetus are mentioned in verses uh, 14 through 18. And they, it's interesting, they, they, they presented some, uh, some interesting theories about what might be going on in the course of Christian history. They'd said the, the resurrection had already happened and they were rocking people's faith. They're like, well, if the resurrection has already happened and I'm still here, what's going on, right? It's the fear that if you grew up a, a premillennial dispensationalist like I did, uh, then, or if, you know, left behind people, right? <laughs> you guys know left behind. If you grew up with that sort of mentality about uh, eschatology, then 
Like, you, you lived with this fear. What if the rapture happens, happens and I'm left behind, right? You lived with this fear. It's the same sort of fear-mongering that these two guys were doing in Ephesus. They were going, the resurrection already happened. We're still here. What's going on? <laughs> they were stirring up all sorts of issues and disagreements and arguments and disunity amongst God's people. Such, such an interesting thing because we get so much of this today. So much disunity gets stirred up just by opinions and these like kind of crazy extra-biblical revelations. This happens. It gets stirred up and people split churches over it. It split churches over it. Opinions, things about conscience. I mean, so, some even in the church want nothing more to, to, than to stir up these sorts of divisions. Others interestingly, think that unity means perfect agreement with their opinions, right? So that's what they're seeking, right? They're like, this is it. Like, this is what I believe, therefore everyone must believe it. This is where my conscience is tweaked, therefore everyone must believe it. These people tend to, interestingly, do either very little suffering as they declare these things from their ivory towers, or they, they suffer for all the wrong reasons, if you suffer for Christ, well done. If you suffer for forcing your opinions down people's throats, you kind of deserve it. You've got to be careful when it comes to these things. We, we have to be careful that we never compromise on essential doctrine, nor turn our opinions into thus says the Lord. You get where I'm at? There's, a, there's a, a third way. There's a better way, right? So there's this one way that says, you know, we'll just compromise on everything or most things. And there's another way that says, well, my opinions are the only right ones. There's a third and better way, which is unity on the essentials. What a wonderful thing. Unfortunately, like a lot of people in the church get into these foolish controversies. I mean... We can talk about alcohol. We can talk about vaccines. We can talk about opinions uh, uh, of politics, uh, economics. Take your pick. We can talk about a lot of different things. I mean, even, like I said, these supposed prophecies or these, this political re rhetoric that often comes out. People like to argue loudly about these things, but they, they often don't proclaim sound doctrine even louder. They, just, they leave behind the most essential things about the faith and they start screaming about that which is really pointless in comparison. Often people end up speaking softly about doctrine and, and just scream about whatever it is they want to scream about. See, good doctrine, I'll, I, I want to define this for you. Good doctrine is... Uh, it says that, the, for example, the commandment not to murder, right? Let's just hang out there. The commandment not to murder. Good commandment. I think we can all agree. It's a good commandment. Uh, we, we would say that that, uh, that commandment not to murder implies that we should seek to preserve human life. This is sort of the nature of the Ten Commandments. What There is... 
there is that which is said clearly and that which is implied both positively and negatively through them. So when it says do not murder, it means preserve life. Okay. That right there is good doctrine. The commandment not to murder means that we should preserve human life. That's sound doctrine. No questions. That is what it is. All right? You know what a matter of opinion or application might be? That goes on this other side of like, if you start preaching this as if it were true, you might end up in a little bit of error. A matter of application would be whether that means you should get a vaccine or not. Individually. Me telling you, you should get a vaccine, you should not get a vaccine is a matter of individual conscience, which should be left to the Christian to do in faith or not do in faith. What about certain foods, avoiding certain foods? Maybe you're a, a gluten-free person and you want to get everybody on the gluten-free train. This is evil for your body. It causes inflammation. It's going to cause all sorts of problems, you say. So everybody should be gluten-free. Well, what if that's a matter of individual conscience? What if that's an opinion that doesn't need to be a hill that you die on? What about picketing abortion clinics? Well, that's the, there's a clear command to preserve human life, but I think it should be left to the conscience of the individual Christian whether they walk that out by picketing an abortion clinic or not, fighting in other ways. We can't make these things to be primary in our lives. We can't fight over these things because there are more essential things that we should be focused in on. And that's the essential doctrines here. We don't need to argue about these matters of conscience. We don't need to worry about people who seek to undermine the church. We can keep them at arm's length and just go, no, we're not having any of that. Because ultimately, and it says it in the passage here today, the Lord knows those who are his. That's something that I really want to just kind of brush by, but I think there's a wonderful thing happening here uh, as we talk about uh, this idea of people trying to undermine the church by bringing in dissension or maybe even unintentionally bringing in dissension and disunity. The reality is that God knows who uh, those who are his, and so the church ultimately will not be torn down by people who seek to undermine it or seek to come in and, uh, and you know, blast their opinions all over the place. The church will not be torn down by it ultimately. It may be hindered for a time, but God is faithful to his people. He knows who are his, and therefore he will save them. So instead of these arguments that we could engage in, these silly, irreverent things, as Paul says elsewhere, um, really, rather than doing all of that, what we really need to do is do the dishes. <laughs> if, you, if you were paying attention, then that's going to make a little bit of sense for you. In verses uh, 20 through uh, 23-ish, well, 22. Uh, Paul gets to talking about uh, doing the dishes. He's talking about pursuing holiness. So there are some who, who uh, are, are set aside for dishonorable use and some who are set aside for honorable use and those who are cleansed from unrighteousness, those who, who shun sin and, and press it away, who seek holiness, those, those are the ones reserved for honorable purposes. The people of God must cleanse themselves from unrighteousness. Not to merit salvation, don't get me wrong. Don't hear me saying that. Never hear me say that. 
Your, your actions cannot merit your salvation. But your good works can make you ready for the future good works that God has set before you. If you seek holiness now, you will be ready to receive that which God has prepared for you later. My favorite quotes from John Owen, 17th century Puritan. Pastor Brandon already knows where I'm going. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. I love that. It's that like always vigilant sort of thing. It kind of gets back to the soldier sort of mentality. Head on a swivel, watch for sin, kill it where it stands. Man, that's really what, what Paul is getting at here when he, when he starts talking about doing the dishes, right? Cleansing from, from these dishonorable things. We've got to keep that stuff at arm's length. One of the most effective tools in Satan's arsenal is hateful arguments about small things. And so maybe we need to just keep that at arm's length. We need to do the dishes, get the dishes clean. Set ourselves aside for honorable uses, not for dishonorable ones. And really, I, the, the one piece of this passage uh, in verse 22, it says, uh, flee useful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. I love that. I love that because it gives you license to keep those who are outside the bounds of Christian orthodoxy, who might even come in and want to force their opinions and, and make issues of things that should not be made issues about, you, can, you have license to keep them at arm's length and to go, no, I'm not gonna pursue, try to pursue all of these good things, faith, love, peace, I'm not, righteousness. I'm not gonna try to pursue those things with you when all you're doing is stirring up dissension. Now, will we engage them? Yes, we'll see that later in a moment, but it's different. We have every right to go into uh, our lives and go, okay, like who are the people that I need to pursue these things with? Do it. And do you do that? Do you have people in your life where you can go, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get together with that person and I'm going to try to pursue peace and love and righteousness, faith with them? He says, do it with others. This also gets to kind of the essential of, of the Christian church. Like, you need to be in church if you're a Christian, right? That's part of what we do here on a Sunday morning, but also even just like creating those relationships and having, you know, texting conversations, getting on Zoom or like meeting up at the coffee place, whatever it is, like that's how we do what Paul is commanding here. Do it together with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Outside of Sunday mornings, we, uh, we don't really formalize this much yet. We haven't yet, anyway. Community groups are a good way. We're going to start those back up in fall. Uh, that'll be a, a good time, I think, uh, to, to sort of begin some of those relationships if you haven't already. Um, but also, like, I, I would just encourage you to, to find those discipleship relationships. Go to somebody. I guarantee you that there are people in this church who want to hear from you that, like, would love to go, to go like, yeah, let's grab coffee, you know, once a month and just talk about whatever it is that God's doing in our lives. Let's go to the scriptures and just, like, grab a chapter a month. That's not much, guys. It takes you, like, 30 seconds. I, I read a whole chapter just now, and you listened to it. So, like, I guarantee you that you could get around to a chapter of Bible study with somebody a month. 
If you can't get out of the house, fine. Get on Zoom, FaceTime, whatever. All right? Find time to do this with other people. Ideally, obviously, it's face-to-face because that's really helpful, but man. I'm just saying link arm-in-arm with someone else who will pursue godliness with you and help you to do it. You hear what I'm saying? Like, if you don't have that, find it. Go pursue it. Soldier through. Do the difficult thing that no one else is willing to do. And if you haven't been approached and you're like, I, like well, but nobody's coming to me and, and, and asking me if I want to like, do a Bible study with them, fine. Go find somebody. I know, look, I'm an introvert too. Maybe that's surprising because I'm up here talking, but I'm an introvert. I, I can be kind of socially awkward sometimes. But I guarantee you that if you went to somebody in this church and said, hey, I want to study the Bible with you, they'd be like, once a month, that's not too bad. Let's try it. Anyway, that's kind of a side point. What I really want to get to today at the end here uh, is something that I think is very helpful in our, in our culture today. Look at uh, verses 24 through 26. I'm just going to read them again. The servant, must, the servant of, uh, of the Lord must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to see their, or to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Man, what do you do when somebody comes up against you in the church? Well, you don't yell back. That's what this culture likes to do, right? We love to put people on blast. You go to, go, go to Facebook and write a passive-aggressive Facebook post that doesn't mention them by name, but everybody knows. That's not how our, our culture tends to deal with this stuff. What does the, the word of God say? It says gentleness, kindness. You're not screaming in people's faces. Because Satan would just love for the church to turn into to one, one of two things. One, a, a, just a yelling and screaming match, just like everybody else in the world today. Or absolutely passive on everything. What are we to do when we come to conflict with the world, with other people, even inside the church? We engage them with kindness, patience, and gentle correction. This is the hard road. It takes time and energy. It isn't just a, a quick post that you can just set out there and walk away. You, you know the social media bombs I'm talking about. You just do it and then you just go, yeah, I'm gonna ignore all the comments. That's low effort stuff. What I'm talking about, the Christian way to do this is a high effort, high touch sort of situation. You know why? Because you have to ask questions, not in order to find a response, but in order to understand. You need to hear the person's heart, not just their words. You need to understand that sometimes their screaming comes from pain. You need to respond with confident but gentle clarity. This is the hard road. And why? Well, we do this because God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth that they might come to their senses after being captured by Satan to do his will.
it's worth it. It's worth that little bit of effort. So yes, you shouldn't engage in those foolish controversies. Maybe start asking the question, where's this really coming from? How can I know your heart so that I can correct gently with compassion? This sort of thing and, and really everything else we, we, we've been talking about today really takes a lot of confidence, right? It takes a lot of confidence in Christ. It takes a willingness to suffer and it, it takes a constant pursuit of godliness in your own life in order to actually be effective in doing these things. It takes confidence. So the, the question I want to leave you with today is where is your hope? Is your hope in comfort, physical well-being? Where is it? Does suffering rock your faith? I know it does mine sometimes. Have you become complacent in your pursuit of holiness? I think that would show you that your hope is not in Christ. At least part of it. You're not living like it. A pursuit of holiness is a fruit of pursuing Christ. Do you tend to scream and yell rather than addressing others with patience and gentleness? Things to think about. I don't ask these questions to condemn you, but I ask them in order to convict you. I know I was convicted as I read this, as still am as I continue to preach this. I want you to know today that if you are in Christ, if you believe in Jesus Christ, then your sins are forgiven. You have eternal life, and you have a real hope. When I say hope, I'm not talking about something that might happen. I'm talking about something that will happen. It is a sure thing. We've seen all of God's past promises come true. His future ones will as well. If this is true, then, then your suffering matters. It's for God's glory. It's for your good, even, in the, even though you can't see it. I know I can't see it most of the time. I know that your per pursuit of holiness then matters if you're pursuing Christ, if you're hoping in him. and You can have that confidence that you need if you are truly hoping in Christ to engage the world with that gentle kindness that it so badly needs these days. If you've placed your hope elsewhere, then then I say, confess your sins before God, trust in the finished work of Christ, and renew your hope in him. Thanks for listening to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about Mosaic, including location and service times, or to support us financially, visit our website at mosaicrva.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook at Mosaic Church RVA. Remember, it's not about us, it's all about you.